Sir John, you are the 12th Goodhart Professor to be interviewed for the Eminent Scholars Archive. You retired in 2016 as a Lord Justice of Appeal, having risen through the ranks of legal practitioners and the judiciary where you started as a barrister in 1971. You've been the Goodhart Professor of Legal Science for the academic year 2016-17. We are very grateful to you for agreeing to share some reminiscences of your life and your career as well as your experiences here in Cambridge over the last year. After summarising these activities, I hope that you can give us some thoughts on legal topics and notions with which you've become associated through your published writings, particularly some topical constitutional issues. So could we start with your early life? You were born, Sir John, on the 10th of May 1945, as the Second World War ended. Yes, I was. Uh, that was two days after VE Day. Um, apparently I was late and my mother was very angry that she missed all the parties. Where were you born? In Nottingham, where my mother's parents lived at the time. Were your parents involved in the law? No, they were both doctors. They were both uh, in the Royal Army Medical Corps in the wartime, serving in Egypt. My mother came back. Uh, pregnant and uh, uh, she had a, a, one of these strange things that apparently happened in pregnancy. Every time she saw a particular steward on the boat she was sick but not otherwise. Yeah, from 1950 to 63 you were at school, first at Durham Cathedral Choir and then at the secondary Durham School. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Any mentors that stand out from that period? Well, there was um, there were very good classics masters at Durham School. One was called Bobby Smithson. The other was a was the school chaplain, called Jack Marston. And I think they, and also the Latin and Greek I learned at um, the, the choir school, the prep school, um, gave me a love of the classics, the ancient classics, which I've always had. What at that point were your main academic interests? Latin. Latin. That's surprisingly, no doubt, but, but uh, it was. I greatly disliked sport and still do. In 1963, you went up to Exeter College. Yes. And you graduated in 1967 with your BA. And you wrote in 2004 that Lord Birkenhead's biography, and I quote, led me, for the little that it is worth, into the law. And I wonder if you could expand on the circumstances of this very important event in your career. Well, my, my father had a copy of the really rather poor biography of F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead, that had been written by Birkenhead's son. And I read it, or perhaps I only read some of it, I don't recall, as a young teenager. And I, I suppose I thought that as teenagers perhaps are inclined to, that this was a very... Um, uh, romantic uh, profession with a lot of contest in it. And I remember announcing to my grandfather on August the 1st of my 13th year that I was going to be a barrister. I knew it was August the 1st because that was the day we always went up to North East Scotland for the summer holiday. You list philosophy as one of your interests in who's who. Mm -hmm. Did you read philosophy at Exeter? I read uh, uh, what at Oxford is called greats at Exeter College, Oxford, that is to say, the ancient classics plus philosophy. And the course included quite a lot of modern philosophy. Though so I've been particularly interested ever since then in uh, moral and political philosophy, which I think are disciplines that are intertwined with the law. And they've made a great deal of difference to my uh, approaches to the law or views about the law for what that may be worth. Any influential teachers or lecturers that you remember from Oxford? Yes, two. There, were the, there was a young Canadian um, called John Baker who was teaching the modern philosophy. And uh, I don't remember any particular incident, but he was a very good teacher, very clear, very precise and very encouraging. The uh, ancient history tutor was a, uh, an older man called Dacre Bolson, who was a very well-known teacher amongst classicists. He was a, um, uh, what you might call, an archetypal bachelor don. The uh, first essay I wrote to him, 
wrote for him uh, was on um, Greek colonization, I think. And uh, as was the tradition, um, the undergraduate reads the essay to the, uh, to the Don, who listens and then comments on it. And as I read this essay to Dacre Bolston, he blew sp perfect smoke rings uh, from his very long cigarette holder. And at the end of the essay, he said, this essay is like a souffle that hasn't risen. Now, after that, I'm sure I wrote other bad essays, but none that were quite so boring. Sir John, what were your ambitions for a career in law at that time? I don't know if I had I looked ahead very far. Um, I certainly wanted to be a successful court advocate, um, the traditional route for the, for the bar. I don't believe that when I was an undergraduate or a student, a, a law student, a little later, I had any particular uh, focused ideas about the bench. That came a bit later on. So I, my energies were concentrated on, on uh, practice at the bar in the traditional way, really, of common law chambers. So how did you proceed after your BA? Well, I uh, took the degree, the, 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 the Oxford finals in 67. I then went, came to London and... Um, was already a member of the Inner Temple, having decided to go to the bar, and went through the bar exams and was called to the bar at the Inner Temple in 1970, pupillage 1970-71, and then I remained in the same chambers, the general common law chambers they were, throughout my career until I went on the bench in 1992. The, um, as I say, they were general common law chambers, so one saw a very wide range of practice. But uh, after some years, I got more involved in uh, public law, administrative law, because as a more senior person in my chambers, now uh, Lord Brown, Eaton under Haywood, was the uh, what's called the Treasury Devil, that's to say the advocate, uh, the member of the bar who is instructed in the major civil cases on behalf of the government, whatever political colour it may be. And so some of the work he couldn't do for the government filtered down to me, and I succeeded him as Treasury Devil in 1984. And after that, I was doing a lot of public law uh, cases, and that became my major interest, I suppose. Thank you. Coming then, Sir John, to your legal career, uh, you've had a very illustrious career. Uh, you were called to the bar of the Inner Temple in 1970, having left Exeter College in 1967. That's right. And were those three years spent studying for the bar? Yes, mainly. I did a little uh, teaching back at Oxford. I was asked to go back and teach some. Um, some undergraduates on a Saturday morning for the philosophy part of the grades degree. Uh, so there was that. I also did a bit of ad hoc teaching in London. Um, otherwise, I was uh, pursuing the bar course, which I did in quite a leisurely fashion. Um, though I didn't fail any exams. I think I had some gaps between uh, one and the next one. So I was called, as you say, three years after finishing at Oxford in 1970. And why did you choose the bar rather than a career in academia? Because I thought that it would be interesting and rewarding and fun to be a court advocate. You were a barrister at Common Law from 71 to 92, 21 years. Um, what cases did you specialise in? Well, uh, after some years, I became more and more interested in public law and uh, uh, had a, a number of cases for the Crown until I, and then I was appointed to be Treasury Devil in 1984. And the Treasury Devil uh, is an exception to the cab rank rule of the bar, which he doesn't take any clients other than the government of the day. Whether or not there's an election, the government changes, the Treasury Devil continues acting only for the government. And most of the cases then were, were public law cases. It, at that time, 
judicial review was beginning to come into its own. There were also quite a lot of cases, uh, well, certainly, yes, a fair number of cases in the uh, European Court of Justice, where I went as maybe a dozen times, and uh, one or two visits to the Strasbourg Court uh, as well. In previous years, the Treasury level had uh, possibly, I'm not sure about this, had a, a wider range of work because there was less public law, administrative law work, so the Treasury devil might do some of the um, heavier personal injury cases or other litigation for the Crown. But by my time, in the second half of the 80s, uh, judicial review was the, very much the coming thing. And uh, during that time, I had um, I was involved in the spycatcher litigation which took me to Australia. Uh, I was involved in the Death on the Rock inquest in Gibraltar, which took me there to Gibraltar, uh, and a large number of cases in the Court of Appeal of the House of Laws here at home. Very interesting, Sir John. That, uh, to some extent, explains your foreign qualifications. Oh, at the bars of New South Wales yes. and yes, it was yes. because of those two cases. Right, it was necessary to be admitted to the local bars in order to take part. I wondered about that. Um, you were in nineteen eighty four to ninety two the first junior treasury council. Yes, the that's the treasury general. That's yes. the treasury general, and um, this was during the Thatcher and the major years of government. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wondered. With it, this is a, how did you make this job? Did you apply for this position? No, um, the the system is that the and has been since I think the early nineteenth century, certainly a long time. Um, the Treasury Devil is appointed by the Attorney General. Uh, I've never heard of anyone applying for the job. I suppose There's nothing to stop you writing to the Attorney and saying, make me the next Treasury Devil, but I don't think it would increase your chances very much. And um, by the time I was appointed in 84, I had uh, done quite a lot of government cases, the cases which the then Treasury Devil couldn't do because he'd be in two or three places at once. It's a very busy job. Uh, and, and as had a lot of other barristers, there, were, there was a panel, and indeed there are three panels now, I think, of barristers doing government work, so to speak, under the Treasury Devil. And that means that the Treasury solicitors and the, and the Attorney General's office get to know uh, the, the various members of the bar who are doing government work, and also they'll see members of the bar appearing against the government. So they get quite a pool from whom eventually the next Treasury Devil will be selected, and that was me in '84. You dealt with governmental matters, these governmental matters, for 12 years, and looking back, was the work particularly political during this period? It wasn't 12 years, 80, 84 to 92, mm. by my arithmetic, is oh, eight. Eight years. In fact, it was about seven and a half, I think. Right. Thank you. Particularly political, well, that, I think, depends what you mean by political. It wasn't... I was not concerned with... Um, um, what you might call party political disputes at all. <clears throat> I was concerned only with, obviously, the litigation that the government got involved in. Now, that could be highly political in one sense. I mean, cases like the, uh, the Spycatcher case could be said to be political. How far should the, the, the state uh, censor people who want to write about the security service? The Death on the Rock uh, also could be said to be highly political. It was the background of it was um, ultimately the Irish Troubles and the uh, efforts of the IRA in that case to um, commit murder and destruction in Gibraltar. Um, other cases, uh, there were a lot of Home Office cases, prisons, um, a lot of uh, planning cases for the Department of the Environment. Um, or many could be said to be political in a small p sense. And the work was very varied across the departments of state. Sir so John, in 92, you were appointed as judge of the High Court at right. Queen's Bench, having served your apprenticeship as a recorder. 
Uh, do these appointments take place by invitation or do you apply to become a, a full-time judge? Well, the system's changed since 1992. In 1992, and for a little while after, I think, um, the, 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 the appointment of to the High Court is by invitation by the Lord Chancellor, or the appointment is made by the Queen on the Lord Chancellor's advice. Now, as is well known, there's a Judicial Appointments Commission. Uh, applications are invited, uh, and there are uh, quite extensive, if not exhaustive, procedures uh, for such appointments. But in my time, it was by invitation. However, uh, it's been the convention certainly since the 19th century, um, that the Treasury Devil, unless I suppose he or she misbehaves himself in some way, uh, is offered a High Court judgeship after he has done, or she has done, there hasn't been a Lady Devil yet, I'm sure there will be soon, um, after he's done five or six years, I did seven and a half, which was longer than the average. There was one Treasury Devil in the 20th century, but only one, who didn't go onto the High Court bench. And that was a man called Valentine Holmes, who was Treasury Devil during the Second World War. And it's said that uh, there were a lot of uh, furrowed brows at the prospect of him becoming, um, uh, becoming a High Court judge. Largely, I think, because he was fond of going to the dog races with his clerk. Why that should have put people off, I don't know. But the, the truth may be, he, he didn't want to be a judge. All the others, however, have become High Court judges. <coughs> you uh, were knighted during this period. Yeah. And uh, was this, presumably this was a momentous occasion? For me, certainly, yes. yes. Involved a private audience of uh, the Queen, which um, to any loyal subject would be momentous, I would imagine. Any re recollections of the occasion? I remember it very well, but um, of course I will not describe my private conversation with my sovereign. So, John, are there any... Oh, I should now have a very good lunch with my wife afterwards. Huh. Are there any highlights or general impressions that you can share with us that cover these years? The years on the High Court? Yes. Yes, there are one or two things. The, the, the High Court judges or... The, there are exceptions and the system has changed somewhat. But broadly, the uh, High Court judges go out on circuit around the country, England and Wales. Uh, they spend about half their time, did then, in London, in the Royal Courts of Justice, uh, and the rest going out to various um, uh, provincial centres. And I went out on circuit a lot uh, from... Newcastle in the northeast, where I went as, as often as I could, really, because I'd come from that part of the world, and also the judges' lodgings were very delightful up there, down to uh, <coughs> Winchester in the southwest. <coughs> and I greatly enjoyed going out on circuit. My wife came with me a lot of the time. You meet the local, um, the local circuit judges, the high sheriffs, um, sometimes magistrates and other local people. You get to know bits of the country that perhaps you wouldn't have got to know otherwise. That was a very good experience. The other thing I'd mention is sitting in what is now called the Administrative Court, then the Crown Office List, and doing um, uh, public law cases, the sort that I'd done as a barrister. <clears throat> now I was doing as a judge and much enjoyed it. After seven years in, in, of being a judge in the High Court, in 99 you became a Lord Justice of Appeal, mm -hmm. and presumably one of the qualifications for this is to have been a High Court judge. It's not a statutory or necessary qualification. Uh, it, it's possible legally to be promoted direct from the bar to the Court of Appeal. Uh, Lord Wilberforce, no, that's no... Lord Radcliffe, many years before, was appointed direct from the bar to the House of Lords. But the... Oh, my wife will get it. The customary um, cursus honorum is from the High Court to the Court of Appeal. So, excuse me. Can you manage, darling? 
Okay. So, John, is there anything you can tell us that might epitomise your role over this period, which in which there were some very interesting political developments, both locally and internationally? Well, I remember some particular cases. Um, the one that um, interests the academics most is a case called Thoburn, known as the Metric Martyrs case, in which I gave a judgment describing and explaining, as I thought it to be, the, the power relationship between Brussels and Westminster. And uh, you won't want me to go into the technicalities of the judgment, but that was a case that's, of, if I may say so, of some importance, or the subject matter is of some importance, in, 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 in relation to um, the extent to which our membership of the European Union affected uh, our national sovereignty. And on, on my view, it affected it a lot less than is thought by others. But that was quite an important case. One other I'd mention, a case called Witham, the case in which the then Lord Chancellor um, purported to increase the court fees by a very considerable percentage, thus preventing some people from litigating at all <clears throat> in areas where there was no legal aid. <clears throat> and um, we held, let to say, Lord Justice Rose and I, that the uh, order was unlawful because it effectively prevented access to a constitutional right, namely access to the Queen's courts. So those two are perhaps quite, quite important cases. The third one was a case about the Chagos Islanders, in which I um, held that the uh, order in council to move the Chagos Islanders was uh, unlawful. And at first the government were not going to appeal against it, but then I think they, they did or they made another order and the, the saga went on for a long time. Fascinating. Um, before we come to your visiting academic positions, just to conclude this section, during your career, Sir John, you've reached high judicial office. What would you say were the most significant legalistic developments that occurred during your career? I should have thought the development of human rights law is probably the one that particularly comes to mind. As is well known, we've been um, signatories to the European Convention on Human Rights um, for a very long time, since the 50s. But in 1998, um, the Human Rights Act brought the rights in the European Convention into domestic law so they could be litigated in our own courts. And that has uh, really transformed the uh, tensions and relationships between claims of citizen and claims of government. Uh, areas like the deportation of foreign criminals who may seek to resist the deportation on the grounds they've got children here, uh, um, fair trial issues, sending people away to places where they claim they might be tortured. All these uh, are uh, issues that have proved extremely lively and are all, so to speak, children of the Human Rights Act. The Human Rights Act, I think, has been a great force for good, but it has also had its dangers. Uh, I said in a lecture once that human rights uh, are like the human heart. The bigger they get, the weaker they get. And I think there's some truth in that. I think we have sometimes uh, uh, elevated the claims of human rights to a point where the public interest has been diminished. But that would be a long and big conversation than the devil would be in the detail. Coming then to your visiting academic positions, over the years you've been visited various academic institutions, Northumbria, mm -hmm. uh, you, you've been an honorary fellow at Robinson College and Exeter College. That's right. These might be considered standard academic positions. Is there anything that stands out from any of these situations? I wouldn't describe honorary fellowship of an Oxford and Cambridge College as standard in any sense. I think it's extremely honorific and have been uh, very delighted to, to have had those, those honours. 
particularly um, this year when I've been in Cambridge as the Goodhart Professor, and that has allowed me to go very frequently to Robinson to make new friends there as well as meet old ones. Uh, I was dining there, a very in informal dinner in the senior common room last night, and that has given me much pleasure. And I hope that when I'm finished uh, here at Cambridge, I will maintain those links in a lively uh, fashion. So uh, the, the, that's as regards to those, the fellowships. Uh, the Oxford Fellowship was of my own old college. Um, I gave one of my Hamlet lectures there, and I've greatly enjoyed being an honorary fellow there as well. In 1964, when I was an undergraduate at Exeter, my now wife and I went to the commemoration ball, which was to commemorate, was it? 600 years, uh, yes, that's right, um, 600, the 600th anniversary of the foundation of the college. And then in 2014, 50 years later, we went to the Command Ball again to celebrate the 650th anniversary of the college. So that was great fun. But um, that's entertainment rather than work, so to speak. So, John, could you tell us something about your association with the Cumberland Lodge? Cumberland Lodge, yes. Cumberland Lodge is a, uh, a, 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 a trust. Uh, it occupies a Grace and Favour house in Windsor Park. It was a royal residence uh, in the wartime, the Second World War, 1943, I think. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, later the Queen Mother, read a book by a woman called Amy Buller called Darkness Over Germany. She was um, uh, a lady from Liverpool, I think, uh, or she worked in Liverpool, who um, knew the German language very well, had German friends and visited Germany a great deal during the <clears throat> early years of the Nazi era. And she wrote this book, it's just been republished, I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to, uh, essentially about the influences that she saw had uh, brought the Nazi youth uh, under the Nazi flag, so to speak. And the Queen Mother was so impressed by this, and I think the King read it too, that arrangements were made after the war, 1947, to hand over the, this house, Cumberland Lodge, to a trust to be run by Amy Buller to um, uh, bring together young people in this country, uh, essentially a, a, what, for want of a better expression, you might call a Christian flavour, but the idea is that uh, the young people from the universities and elsewhere should come, should learn, should think, should talk freely, should understand different and conflicting ideas. And that has been going on ever since. I first went there as a bar student in 1969, I think, um, because each of the four inns of court sent their students there for two weekends a year. And I got to like it very much and went back several times when I, later when I was at the bar, um, getting quite senior at the bar, I ran the Inner Temple Committee that organised the weekends. And then um, three or four years ago, a few years ago, no more than that, I think, I was appointed visitor of Cumberland Lodge in succession to Princess Margaret. Uh, the visitor doesn't have to do any duties or would, or, or unless there's some terrible fallout between the principal and the trustees or something. It's very unlikely. It certainly hasn't happened. But it means I've maintained a very strong link with the place. I was lecturing there last week about extremism. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, I don't know what word to use really, other than excellent. It's a splendid, a worthwhile institution that does a great deal of good. So John, you're coming to the end of your time in Cambridge. I am, I'm afraid, yes. And uh, <clears throat> could you summarise the, your activities and give your impressions of your year here, starting perhaps with the topics that you taught? Well, I, I gave a course of lectures over two terms on the subject of judicial review and the rule of law to third-year undergraduates. <clears throat> I learned a great deal preparing those lectures. I hope the students did too. I'm in the middle of marking the papers. Um, 
it's been for me a very interesting and worthwhile experience teaching the young as opposed to dishing out judgments it's um, it's, it's 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 very different but strangely similar you, in, in each case you are you are hoping that you will um, persuade um, those who are concerned that you're right of course if you're the judge uh, your your word goes uh, subject to any appeal but you still want um, those who are concerned to think yes that's that's the right intellectual answer or the right moral answer and of course you feel the same teaching students but I think also you learn a lot because you may have thought some particular point to be obvious for 20 or 30 years and then somebody may say something in class and you think oh, maybe it's not so obvious after all so it's the teaching I think is a kind of youth drug it keeps you uh, it, it keeps you intellectually curious so that's one thing the other thing I would say and I would particularly emphasize this is um, my wife and I are both Oxford graduates as it happens we have been made hugely welcome here by the other members of the law faculty by the staff at the law faculty by everyone at Robinson College and by others um, my wife has joined a couple of groups here in Cambridge they've been very welcoming we could not I think have been more kindly and generously treated uh, did you come here originally with a particular plan of collaboration with anybody in the faculty? I corresponded with Professor David Feldman uh, and with one or two others uh, and uh, it was necessary to decide before I started last October what um, I was going to do, how I was going to use the year. So I had decided before October that I would give this course of lectures and as regards that, I've been greatly helped in the administration and in discussions and in every possible way by um, others in the law faculty. Professor Feldman has been involved uh, with me in running the lectures. It's me that's given them and he could not have been more helpful. Any overall conclusions of opportunities that the chair presents? Well, the chair, I think, I hope this is right, is designed to, 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 frankly, to leave the Goodhart Professor quite a lot of time to decide uh, what to do himself. And I think the idea is that uh, it's an opportunity for your own research or writing. Now, I've not exactly been doing any research, but I am hoping, and I've started, but it's an early stage still, to uh, use these this course of lectures as the foundation for uh, a book uh, which will be certainly about constitutional law but it'll also be it'll be about the morals of constitutional law if that makes sense we'll have to see what the book says so that will be your next project when you leave I think Cambridge. so I've got one or two other things to do the odd lecture to give but uh, that would be a uh, project over some little time, yes. Any other plans? Um, I've got a novel in my head to write, but I'm not going to tell you about that. Well, that sounds very interesting. Um, we Could we touch on some broader legal topics now? Um, your views on major legal issues. You've written several <clears throat> books and chapters in books, as well as numerous journal articles. Could we briefly talk about the topics which have interested you especially? I've looked, Sir John, as best I could at your some of your output, and several themes seem to stand out for me. Judicial review, constitutional matters, mm. Wednesbury and unreasonableness. <coughs> yeah. Yet your first publication, listed in your Who's Who, was in 1977, and a Dictionary of Medical Ethics, this stands out from your other, and I wondered... Yeah, it may, maybe the entry is misleading, I hope it isn't. I didn't write the whole dictionary, I contributed one small piece in it, um, and I can't remember what it was about. Right. <laughs> it was 1970-something, I think, that, 77 possibly. Yes. Um, 
Yes, it's a long time ago. I've got it on the shelf somewhere. But uh, it's, it's this travelled into the distant fog of memory. Two areas in which you've written widely are judicial review yeah. and the unreasonable test in Wensbury. Yeah. How did it come about that you found these topics so very worthy of your attention? Well, they're, 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 they're out of my practice at the bar and on the bench. Uh, judicial review was the bread and butter of my work uh, in the courts. Um, it interests me um, in principle because it is about the relationship between citizen and state. It's therefore about the difference between a free society and an unfree society. And th that difference seems to me to pervade so much of uh, the important issues that we confront in the modern world, very obviously. Uh, here in England, we have a constitutional balance uh, between the courts and the elected government. Uh, if the balance goes too far down in one direction, you will get the government dictating to the people. If it goes too far down in the other direction, you will get the courts elevating human rights above the general interest. It has to be kept in balance. That interests me from the political, moral and legal point of view. It is a constant struggle to keep the balance. So far, we've not done too badly. No doubt there's always room for improvement. Your interest in matters constitutional has become very topical because of potential changes flowing from Brexit and the imminent modification of the status quo compared to when you wrote your articles. It would be fascinating to know your views on these issues, Sir John. Well, uh, as far as Brexit is concerned, I have no uh, particular voice on economic matters or the difficulties that are going to be encountered in the negotiation. I can only speak about uh, constitutional questions. One thing that troubles me very greatly has been the use of the referendum. Not, uh, I don't mean because of the result, I mean because of the institution of the referendum. If you have important questions effectively decided by the popular vote through a referendum, you are setting up uh, a, a democratic poll that is in opposition to a, another democratic poll, namely representative democracy in the form of the uh, uh, parliament, the legislature. You are having direct democracy uh, and indirect democracy vying for position. It's well known that many members of parliament in both houses um, felt in their own political consciences that uh, Remain was the right answer, um, but they voted for the bill that authorised the Article 50 decision in light of the referendum result. Now, what is a representative politician to do? Is he to follow Edmund Burke and give the his electors the benefit of his own conscience? Or is he merely to act as a delegate, which it could be said is what is being done if uh, MPs simply follow what a referendum has told them. I think this is constitutionally troublesome. It may be that because of the very particular um, uh, acute importance of the Brexit issue, it was justified to hold a referendum. I have not a fixed opinion about that. I think it's probably easier to justify the referendum that took place in 2014 on Scottish independence, because that was actually about the breakup of the United Kingdom. Uh, but whether or not the Brexit referendum was itself justified, setting up these opposing polls is, I think, constitutionally troublesome. That is the first thing I would say. The only other thing I would say is that I've always thought it a mistake uh, to assert, though it is very often asserted, that our um, sovereignty was um, uh, diminished by membership of the European Union. What actually happened when we passed the European Communities Act in 1972 is that Parliament delegated the lawmaking power to uh, Brussels institutions. That's the 
consequence of Section 2 of the statute. Since the European Communities Act can be unmade just as it, could, just as it was made, we have not lost the sovereignty of the power to legislate for ourselves. Uh, that's easy to say, and I'm not suggesting that unravelling Brexit is going to be in the least straightforward, but it's important constitutionally to recognise that fact. In 2012, you wrote the, an, an article entitled The Good Constitution, published in the Cambridge Law Journal. Yeah. And you said that the British constitutional system is evolving from one of parliamentary supremacy to one of judicial supremacy. Don't think I did, did I? I think I may have said it's, uh, it, it, it is moving from a parliamentary supremacy to a constitutional supremacy. Is that not what I said? Uh, this, this, this is the David Williams lecture I gave in May 2012. I certainly wouldn't assert a judicial supremacy. Um, I do think that um, uh, the sovereignty of Parliament needs to be balanced by the um, uh, importation of basic constitutional principles, fairness, reason and the presumption of liberty. Unless Parliament legislates in accordance with those principles, it betrays the people because it's not acting then in accordance with the principles that are needed to protect the people. You, in that article, you cite Professor Bogdaner. Yes, indeed. As saying that since 1997, the Human Rights Act, together with membership of the EU, has provided us with a new British constitution. Uh, do you think this is desirable or is this process irreversible? I think we have an evolving constitution. The, the, the feature of British public law, constitutional law, for which we should frankly be most grateful is its, its ability to evolve without revolution. We haven't had any revolutions since the 17th century, but we have had... Um, enormous constitutional development since then. The enlargement of the franchise, and in, in the last half century, the growth of uh, public law, judicial review in particular. These things are able to happen because the common law is always the same and always different. It can evolve while retaining its essential core. That is something which moves me to uh, believe that it would be a very bad mistake to have a written constitution because a written constitution places all the wisdom of the state in a single moment whereas uh, of course um, as Burke said um, society is a contract between the living the dead and those not yet to be born and the Methods of the common law reflect that, and we are very fortunate that that is so. Sir John, in the same article, page 582, you <coughs> say that without democracy, law is the puppet of tyrants, while without law, democracy is mob rule. Do you see judges acting as neutral arbiters in this tension? And would this be the, and I quote, rule of reason that you mentioned in your 1998 Wensbury book chapter. Oh yes, the rule of reason. <coughs> Judges are not, um, they are impartial arbiters. They are not neutral arbiters. They're impartial because they will not favour one side over the other for the sake of doing so. They are independent, obviously, for the same reason. Neutral is, however, a different concept. Neutral might mean uh, that they do not bring any sense of particular values to their task, but they most certainly do. They are reason, fairness, and the presumption of liberty. It is because of values of that sort that they will interpret a statute in one way rather than another. They are impartial, therefore, but not neutral. I found your Hamlin lecture booklet, which you mentioned earlier, particularly interesting, published in 2014, entitled The Common Law Position, the Hamlin Lectures, CUP. Yeah. It has many allusions to the UK's position in the EU and via the European Court of Human Rights. Could we just finish 
with some consideration of mm -hmm. issues that arise therein. And I'll focus just on the first and the third chapters. Yes. In the first chapter, Common Law and State Power, you emphasise how social change has helped modify the common law. And mm -hmm. interestingly, I've just recently interviewed Professor John Baker. Oh, yes. And he, on this very issue, and he says that in an historical sense, as it pertained to, say, Tudor times, he said he found the linkage was problematic. He says, it is not as straightforward as social historians sometimes assume. And I wondered if you could comment on that, Sir John. I'm sure he's right. Um, the effect of social change on the law, or the law on social change, is not straightforward. But uh, um, it, it, it is a feature of the law that it is ahead of its times and behind the, the times at the same time. It's behind the times because there's an extent to which, as judges are not elected, they have to be careful when and how they react. Uh, they must not be policy leaders. On the other hand, they have to be ahead of their times, of the times, because they may see um, constitutional difficulties on the horizon. And they can sometimes give warnings through their judgments um, uh, about, about that. It, it is a, um, a process that is difficult to describe because it has so many facets. But essentially, uh, this is all about the methods of the common law. They are uh, precedent, history, the distillation of ideas over time. The law, as I said before, is always the same and always different. And that's why uh, it is possible for social change in the law uh, to interreact um, in a way that is not, so to speak, socially violent. Still, the chapter on common law and state power on page 24, you say that judges must not lay down general principles. They can only relate to the facts of the case before them to do otherwise is to encroach on a legislative function. No, that's, that's a quotation from uh, Lord Sumption, who is speaking about the French judges. And if the English judges were like that, I think, well, I mustn't be rude about our continental friends, but I think we are luckier. So, John, the third uh, piece in this book is on the common law in Europe. Very yes. interesting indeed. And on page 57, you mentioned Lord <clears throat> Denning, who likened the EU treaty to an incoming tide, That's right. which he implied could not be held back. Do you think that the tide will now ebb once the 1972 Act is repealed? Yes, plainly. The tide will ebb. How, whether it will go out entirely is another matter. Uh, after the election last week, uh, there's uh, increased uh, talk about uh, the Brexit taking perhaps a different shape than had been anticipated by some. I'm in no position to predict what the outcome will be, whether the European Court of Justice will retain some kind of jurisdiction over uh, some affairs here after the, uh, the two-year period is finished. I don't know. But certainly the time will ebb, otherwise there'll be no Brexit at all. Page 80, you say that although the Human Rights Act cannot force courts to abide by European Court of Human Rights decisions, because the UK has signed the Convention, Article 46.1, we must follow their, law, their case law in cases which involve the UK. So if cases are still sent to the European Court of Human Rights after Brexit, the Constitution can presumably still be strongly influenced by uh, European judges well, it'll continue to be influenced by judges of the Strasbourg Court so long as we remain signatories to the Council of Europe. But it is to be remembered that the Council of Europe and the European Court of Human Rights is not part of the European Union at all. It is not dependent on our membership of the European Union. And uh, if we, if as is presumably to happen, we leave the European Union, we will remain members of the Council of Europe unless we separately withdraw from it. So uh, that will not, will not change. Uh, 
I, I have an issue which I think I discuss in that lecture about the extent to which we should be following the jurisprudence of the Strasbourg Court. Obviously, in a case that goes from Britain to Strasbourg, uh, our international obligations uh, through our membership of the Council of Europe oblige us to abide by the result. But that is not the same as saying we have to follow the jurisprudence in every other case that uh, Strasbourg decides, whether it's to do with um, Article 8, family life, or whether it's to do with Article 3, torture, or anything else. And I think, uh, as I've said before, that our own courts and tribunals have sometimes, I fear, been too slavish in following the uh, Strasbourg jurisprudence. The Section 2 of the Human Rights Act obliges our courts to take account of the Strasbourg jurisprudence. That does not, to my mind, mean the same as agree with it. Perhaps an unrealistic request, but could you look into your crystal ball and say what, if any, fundamental constitutional changes might ultimately flow from Brexit? Well, um, uh, if there remains, I suppose it depends entirely on the terms on which we, which we come out, there may be implications still uh, arising out of Brexit for the um, uh, independence of Scotland, um, although the political picture has changed so rapidly in relation to that that one really can't say. That, that aside, uh, I, I would have thought that um, there, there, is no, there is nothing of fundamental nature that our constitution that will change our constitution, partly because we've never lost the, the sovereignty to legislate for ourselves. Our court system may be uh, strengthened, there may be bigger issues being decided finally by our Supreme Court, uh, that's a possibility I suppose, um, but otherwise I, can't, I would not see further than the outside of the crystal ball. Thank you very much, Sir John, for an extremely interesting account. I'm very Great grateful, pleasure. Very grateful to you. Not at all. Thank you.